You're listening to the Creekside Church Message Podcast. We hope you enjoy this message from Pastor Terry, which is from our sermon series, The Beatitudes, Jesus' Talk on the Hill. For more information, please visit our website at www.creekside.org. Good morning, everybody. How you doing today? It's always good to see y'all. It's good to be seen too. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, stand with me for a moment, would you? Take out your Bibles. Take out your phones. If you use a Bible for your phone or a phone for your Bible, or you find your Bible in your phone, however that works, and uh, we're going to read Matthew chapter seven today. Matthew chapter 7, beginning at verse 15. Be on your guard against false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravaging wolves. You'll recognize them by their... Does anybody have a Bible? You'll recognize them by their fruit. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? No. So in the same way, every good tree produces good fruit, but a bad tree produces bad fruit. A good tree can't produce bad fruit, neither can a bad tree produce good fruit. It's like supercalifragilisticexpialidocious, you know, trying to keep the wording. But every tree that doesn't produce good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So, so, so. You'll recognize them by their fruit. Father, this is your word. We ask, Lord, that you would speak to us today. Uh, Lord, for every person in this room, I'm sure there's points of challenge. There's points of encouragement. Uh, Lord, you said, Isaiah 55, that your word would never return void. So, Lord, let it fill our hearts and our lives today. I speak life and blessing and goodness and the grace of God over these people. In your name, amen. Amen, go ahead and have a seat if you would, please. We are coming in for a landing on Jesus's epic talk, which most people know as the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, we're gonna finish it in two weeks. Uh, and, and I don't know about you, but I am always so challenged by this whole, I mean, I've been, this is I think our 28th week in it. And uh, every week, in some way or another, I've been challenged because Jesus, first and foremost, kind of starts with this ethical teaching of becoming who he calls us to be. But he made this kind of radical switch last week in the talk that we had in verse 15. He went from this kind of ethical teaching to becoming and looking like him to now he kind of gives these three warnings His ending, as he lands it, it isn't coming in for a soft landing. It's not coming in for a kind of a a little story to warm our hearts. It isn't coming in uh, with a pep rally. You know, if you've been to really pep rally type churches, they want to leave you with a, well, a pep rally. Uh, Jesus isn't coming in to do that. It's almost uh, in, in flying parlance, if you've ever been on a plane that had a really tough landing and you just feel it, it's like Jesus is going to jar us a little bit. 
And he says, you know what? Life is about choices. Last week we talked about it. It's about the choice between two gates and two roads that will ultimately lead to different destinies. And every person has to make those choices. He said, Jesus said it. They said, you know, it's not an easy way. It's a hard way. Few find it. Many want to go the other way because it's easier. And today he's going to kind of confront us with Another warning, as I just read, he's going to be talking about people who want to lead others from Jesus and his truth. He calls them false teachers or false prophets. It's relevant back then, and it's just as relevant today that you understand Jesus's point in this because he said he came and he had two underlying assumptions in this passage. Number one, Jesus assumed there were false prophets. And Jesus also assumes that truth matters. Jesus is saying, beware of false prophets. They exist. They're dangerous. And and you have to understand, this is really just kind of a reoccurring theme throughout the Bible, throughout the Old Testament, God was warning, starting in in, uh, the book of Deuteronomy, and he goes through it into Jeremiah that we'll look at in just a few minutes. But it's also uh, spread throughout the whole of the New Testament. Jesus says this, uh, in about 18 chapters, he's, he, he writes this in verses, uh, chapter 24, verses 10 through 12. And many will turn away from me and betray and hate each other. And many false prophets or teachers will appear and will deceive many people. Sin will be rampant everywhere and the love of many will grow cold. And you, you just, all of those points, friends, are taking place today. And I'm going to give a little bit of understanding to that in just a few minutes. Uh, Jesus in Matthew 24, he's really talking about the end times, which we are in. Oh, you you got a date? You got to tell? No, no, I don't. Here's the deal: if you understand biblical teaching, uh, the end times started started really in Acts chapter two with the birthing of the church, when they talked about the day of the Lord. And so we've been in the end times, so to speak, for 2,000 years. Now, we could go another 2,000 years. I don't know. I have no true idea because we people have set dates and they've been way off and far off. But what's the point? Be ready. You've got to be ready. Uh, how many of you had a teacher that loved to spring pop quizzes on you unannounced? You know, you just can't, you don't like those because you can't prepare for them. So you got to stay up to date. It's not like you can cram the night before. It's like you show up in class, pop quiz, and you go, oh my goodness. Well, uh, that's really how it is with Jesus's return and the apocalypse of the world as we know it. No one knows when. Uh, so stay ready, stay ready. But it's in this context of the end times that Jesus warns about false prophets. And then at the beginning of his ministry, which is really what the Sermon on the Mount is all about, it's the beginning, it's ushering in the kingdom. And he says, be aware of false prophets who are going to try and deceive you. Try and get many people to turn away from the truth. 
again, I, I'm, I'm going to give you a few scriptures, not a, a plethora of them, but a, just a sprinkling. Second Timothy 4, 3 and 4 says this. Paul Rice, he says, for the time will come when people will not tolerate sound doctrine. But according to their own desires, they will multiply teachers for themselves because they have an itch to hear what they want to hear. And they will turn away from hearing the truth and they'll turn aside to myths. What what a wonderful word picture. Ah, my ear, it's itching. I want to hear something that I want to hear. And we can do that today, can't we? We can go to just about any church to hear what or who we want to hear. We can go to any podcast. We can go to almost any church website. And if you really want to hear something, then your ears are itching. And and this is in a negative sense. You can go here. But Paul warns people will find teachers who will say what they want their itching ears to hear. And they'll turn away from the truth. And as we'll see, these false prophets, these false teachers in the Old Testament told people what they wanted to hear. And we see it today. We saw it in Jesus' time. But we see it today that there's people who just preach what they want people to hear and what people want to hear, they cater their teaching to that. Second Peter 2, 1, Peter's speaking to the church in his last letter, and he says, but there were also false prophets among the teacher, just, uh, just, excuse me, they're among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will securely introduce, secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord Jesus who bought them bringing them swift destruction on themselves. Peter Peter warns us that false teachers, they're going to introduce these destructive heresies and doctrines. They'll go as far as saying, you know something, Jesus, eh, son of God, eh, that's kind of up, up for debate. The very one who gave his life for them. Jesus assumed, he knew that there would be false prophets As a matter of fact, in Jesus' day, the people were so enamored and waiting for the arrival of the Messiah that it rose up many, many, many people, false prophets, false teachers, who literally declared that they were the Messiah. And you can imagine when people are so anticipating something uh, that many of these false prophets, false messiahs were followed. So Jesus underscores this other key truth, that truth matters. If there's going to be false prophets, there's also true prophets. Probably in our day, we would see most prophets being teachers, uh, biblical podcast leaders, uh, people that have their own website, people that are speaking God's word to people to lead and to guide them. But there's good ones and there's bad ones. There's positive and there's negative. And just like there's falsehood and false teaching, there's truth. But but here's what a lot of people do. We experience our life and then we build our truth around it. My experience becomes my truth, or what a lot of people would say, my reality. This is my reality. But God says, never let your truth be affected by your reality. Don't let your reality or your experience 
determine your truth. I mean, just consider the absurdity of denying the notion of truth. A lot of people do it today. Oh, you know, what's really truth? Can you really, do we really know, you know, we get into these philosophical things about what truth is or isn't. Um, A college professor began his lecture one time by saying, we know it is impossible to prove anything with absolute certainty. Therefore, there is no absolute truth. So a student caught the inconsistency and asked the professor, is that the absolute truth? (laughs) The the professor uh, replied and basically said, I mean, we can't be certain about anything. And the student simply asked, are you certain about that? (laughs) See, the logical inconsistency is apparent there and the statement that there is no truth ultimately becomes a truth claim. But there is such a thing as truth. Truth matters, and we live in this world of competing truths, don't we? People say, this is true. No, this is my truth. No, this is true over here. And what Jesus is reminding us and telling us that we have to be discerning as we go through this life. I mean, our world, let's face it, loved ones, it's complex. There is, there is such a thing as truth, and we as Christ followers have to know that it matters. We live in this world of confusing and completing, competing truth claims. Let me just give you a few. Political, uh, diversity and tolerance, the gap between rich and the poor, uh, urbanization versus the suburbs, racism, The education versus the uneducated. See, we all love this multicultural talk. We believe it's important. But it's so much trickier to navigate than what we really understand it to be. See, we just, we throw out these words and we throw out these thoughts. But we really haven't understood the truth behind them and what it means for us. Why? It's it's because we begin to talk about them. The more we talk about them, the more divided We become because of the complexity of the worldview that we now live in and, the, and, and just the, 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 the deluge of thought that's out there. Am I saying there's anything wrong with it? No, what, I, what I'm saying is, is we have to be discerning. Some parents will say things, well, you know what? <laughs> I'm never going to tell my kid what to think. I'm not going to make them go to church. I'm not going to make them do this. I'm not going to make them do that while they're growing up. How can I say it nicely? That is not good parenting. Because unless your kid is an Einstein or somebody else like that, by the time they become a junior higher, uh, their worldview is not going to be very well developed. And they're going to be looking for answers in some form and foundation of truth that has to come from somebody. Because see, in our lives, loved ones, we look to illuminaries. We look to people who are, who can help us chart a course. That's, course. That's why a lot of people, that's why we go to church a lot of times. What is God saying about this? Give me some greater illumination to walk. Thy word is a light unto my feet, a lamp unto my path, because it helps guide me. And see, if you don't have some absolute truth somewhere, well, you won't have much truth anywhere. And that's what Jesus is reminding us. 
Some claims are true, some are false. And you have to learn, we have to learn to examine these competing truth claims carefully. In the Apostle John's writing in uh, 1 John chapter 4, he said, test the spirits, and we'll see in a few minutes, uh, ways that Jesus gives us to do that. So we've got to understand that truth matters. Then and today, it still matters. And the second thing Jesus wants us to see is there's a danger because there will be false prophets. We've already been talking about that. But Jesus said in Matthew 7, 15, watch out for false prophets. They will come to you in sheep's clothing, and inwardly they are ferocious wolves. So Jesus uses this kind of phraseology six times in the book of Matthew because he's talking to the Jewish people and he says, I want you to be on alert. I want you to be on DEFCON 4. I want you to be ready for this. Otherwise, it's going to ruin your lives. And he uses this picture that uh, these first century people would have understood very well. Wolves in sheep's clothing. They're deceptive. They're ferocious. They're dangerous. You can see back then in this agrarian society, sheep was a, was a main source of revenue as well as uh, food. And the thing that they had to look for was, or be aware of, was this natural predator, which the wolves going around, you've heard it, trying to get into the sheep's pen. Jesus said it this way in John chapter 10. I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus is talking about the people of Israel there. The people that are going to follow him. He says the hired hand is not the shepherd and he does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and he runs away. So when the wolf attacks, the flock scatters. But the man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd. I'm here to protect the sheep from the wolves. Later, Paul would use this same metaphor to warn the pastors in the church of Ephesus as he got ready to leave after being there for three years. He says, be aware. Watch out. Be on high alert. There's a great story in uh, Acts chapter 19 that sometimes it's kind of easy just to gloss over it. But uh, again, this is, uh, Paul was still in the city of Ephesus and God was doing this great thing, great miracles in Ephesus. And Paul was involved in almost every place he went and casting out demons from people that were possessed. Uh, Jesus had given his apostles and his disciples the authority to do that in Mark chapter 3. We can still do that today where it's necessary. So, so, so Paul is going through the region in the area and in the, the city of Ephesus, and he's casting out demons. Well, he was getting some pretty, pretty major press clippings. Whoa, whoa, look what God's doing. He's doing these extremely incredible things taking place. So there was this chief priest by the name of Sceva, and he had seven sons. And he says, you know what? Let's get into the business. They were charlatans. Let's do, because they saw the formula that Paul used. So they said, let's do that. So they said, okay, we're going to go on this trek. We're going to start casting out demons. We're going to get the press clippings. Maybe there's a little coin that gets, you know, we get from the side because people, when you, when things happen, man, they're willing to give out. 
So they go into this house with this demon-possessed man. And, and, and this was the way that Paul would do it. He would say, I command you in Jesus' name to come out of there, you evil spirit, or something to that effect. So they walk into this house with this demon-possessed man. And, and this is how they do it. They go, in the name of Paul and Jesus. <laughs> you know, it's kind of like this third-hand faith. This, this demonically possessed guy comes up and the demon in him rears up and just beat the snot out of him. It literally says that he went outside naked and bleeding. He's a false prophet. He's a false teacher. He was a false follower of Christ. See, there's false prophets, spiritual charlatans everywhere. They, and, and a lot of people do. They want a piece of the pie. They can look like everybody else, but there'll come points in time when they'll be exposed. Uh, these wolves, they come to distort the truth in order to draw away followers from Jesus. But almost always there will come a point when they draw those followers to themselves. Back when I was in uh, Bible College, uh, you remember Jonestown happened in 1978, November of 1978, uh, with Jim Jones. And uh, it was a great time because I was in a speech class, so I had to come up with a speech on something, not from the Bible, just something. So it was a great current event, and I just... Uh, I did a lot of research on it, and I did my speech on it, and I've always been fascinated by what happened there, because you think, how could that happen where 918 people commit a mass suicide? What's interesting, and I read a book a year, a little over a year ago about Jim Jones called uh, The Road to Jonestown, and it's fascinating how he grew up and the things that led him to become where he ended up. But you've heard the statement that power corrupts, total power totally corrupts. And I think that's really what began to happen to him. Uh, because he had this ministry that really kind of exalted Jesus Christ in healing and taking care of people and ministering to the disenfranchised and the down and out in the Midwest. Then he moved to San Francisco area. And the same things begin to happen and take place. Then all of a sudden he starts getting exposed for some of the things that were going on behind the closed doors. And that's when they ended up moving to Guyana. And then they end up doing and committing mass suicide. Here was one of the turning point for a lot of people when they begin to leave, when Jim Jones began to elevate and exalt himself instead of Jesus Christ. So what makes these false prophets and teachers so dangerous. Well, Jeremiah was a true prophet of the Lord, and he prophesied in the years before and after uh, Jerusalem fell to the Babylonians in 586 BC. He warned them that the Babylonian army was coming and resistance to them was futile because it was God's judgment. So he called them to repent and come back and to trust God. Jeremiah is called the wailing prophet because he'd preach and he'd preach. And there's not one record in 40 years of his ministry of anybody repenting and turning back to God. So here's what it says. Uh, Jeremiah 8, 10 through 12. It says, from the least to the greatest, they're all greedy for gain. All practice deceit. They dress the wound of my people as though it were not serious. They say, peace, peace, they say, but there's no peace coming. Are they ashamed of their detestable conduct? No, they have no shame at all. 
They don't even know how to blush anymore. Fifteen chapters later, Jeremiah continues his diatribe on these false prophets and false leaders. But notice the things that he says about them. He says they're greedy for gain. They work on being deceitful. They don't treat Israel's, God's people's wounds seriously. It's like someone coming to a priest or a pastor and they got this terminal disease. And the pastor goes, ah, don't worry about it, man. Just go take a chill pill. You'll be all right. That's what, that's what these false prophets were doing with God's people. And they promised peace when war and captivity was almost at their doorstep. See, prophets, love those teachers, pastors, evangelists. We are meant to be guides to God. You are meant to be guides to God. Cartographers to the right life in the narrow way. But when we, when we, when we fill people with false hopes and we're not speaking God's word, it can lead them astray. So what makes them so dangerous? Well, they deceive people from turning to God, basically telling them, hey, you're okay. Don't worry about it, man. You're going to have peace. Does this sound familiar? Do we have a lot of that today? How do people, how do, how do, how is it communicated a lot of times about sin? That's just an old-fashioned belief. It's made up by people. You don't need to worry about it. Do what you want. Man, it's a free world. You're an American. Make your own decision. You know what? You're ultimately, you can just make up your own way, right or wrong. Do what you want. Don't worry about it. Hell? There's no hell. Who believes in hell anymore? Besides, if there is a God, he wouldn't send anyone to hell. No, he won't. You will choose to go. Don't worry about it. You die, man, it's done. Or a lot of, there's a number of pastors in the last 10, 12, 15 years now that have embraced universalism, which says, you know, it's kind of like at the end, there's going to be this big altar call or something that people can respond to there. Then why worry about it here? I don't see it in the Bible. But some have manufactured that in this thing called universalism that ultimately everybody's going to be saved. This, this, uh, this is a psychological phrase that many of you will remember from the 60s and 70s. I'm okay, you're okay, we're all okay. You know what it says? Basically, people are good. And, 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 and we can look around and see a lot of goodness, no doubt. But see, the Bible says that there is none who is righteous, Romans 3.11. There's none who is righteous, no, not one. Because when you put us in the presence of the almighty, creative, awe-inspiring, holy God... We're really not very good. And see, that right there, what I just said, really rips a lot of people off. Ticks them off. How can you say I'm not good? I didn't. (laughs) And that's what God says. Let's think about it. Look at your dark, the dark crevices of your heart. Look what we're capable of. Come on. How about Jesus? He was a good man. Good moral teacher. Uh, He was kind of trying to point people to God. No, he is God. Well, you know, there's a lot of ways to God. Jesus said, well, that's not what God says of the Bible. 
Well, find your own way. All roads lead to God. Well, no, we just talked about it last week. There's a narrow way and a broad way. Only one leads to God. Or just about God himself, the Trinitarian God. Our ancestors made up the idea to explain all of those things that we didn't understand scientifically. But, oh, now we understand science, and we are so much farther advanced. We know better. We don't need God to figure anything out. See, aren't these all some of the very truths that we hear every day? Forget God, just live your own life. These voices are still around us today and they lull people to sleep with untruths about the true God. And Jesus and other New Testament writers warn, don't be sucked into it. False prophets are deceptive and they're dangerous. So how do you discern if a person is a false prophet or not? Well, Jesus gives us a test. He says, I want you to examine. I want you to check the fruit. That's what Jesus said. As a matter of fact, let me read it. I want to read it in the Message Bible. <clears throat> it's a translation, or excuse me, it's an <clears throat> interpretation. <clears throat> but the way Eugene Peterson writes it is, is very graphic and uh, just a wonderful cadence to it. Listen to this. Be wary of false prophets or preachers who smile a lot, <clears throat> Dripping with practice sincerity. Chances are they're out to rip you off in some way or another. Don't be impressed with charisma. Look for character. Look for preachers. Or excuse me, who preachers are is the main thing, not what they say. A genuine leader will never exploit your emotions or your pocketbook. These disregard, excuse me, these diseased trees with their bad apples are going to be chopped down and burned. I love that. Pop quiz. <laughs> Talked about it early. Let me give you one. What kind of fruit is this? Are you sure? Okay, okay, good, good. What kind of fruit is this? Whoops, oh, oh, oh. What kind of fruit is this? Apple. Okay. So far, man, you are two for two. What is this? Lemon? Okay, good, good. So far, three for three. Gonna be a lot of stars today on the bulletins. What is this? Fruit or vegetable? Oh, it's a fruit. It's a fruit. What is this? What is it? It's not a golf ball. It's a false fruit. It is a golf ball, but it's a false fruit. How do you know? Because you've seen it. You've tasted it. You feel it. If I put each one of these in your hands, many and most of you would be able to go, oh, yeah, I know what that is. Or you go, yeah, I know what that is. If I showed you the tree, many of us might have a little bit harder time. But when you see the real fruit, you know the real fruit. It's a dead giveaway. And Jesus said the same thing about false prophets. He says, let me help you to be able to identify them. 
let me help you to be able to discern how to see them. And the first one he says is the life test. He says, check the fruit of their life. And that's simply the meaning of that means to look for Christ-like character and behavior. Don't believe everything anyone or someone says. Watch how they live. Galatians 5, and 23, it says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. See, the Holy Spirit, when you come to Jesus, the Holy Spirit is really the part of the triune God that comes into our life and lives and makes us more like Jesus, to be more loving, more peaceful, more kind, more gracious, and so on. You you, want to know how to discern false teacher, false prophet, fake Christian? Look at their life. And this is hard because you don't always get to see behind the curtain. How do they handle money? How do they handle power? How do they handle sexuality? Are they under authority of others? Are they they part of a small group of community? How do they treat their wife? How do they treat their husband? How do they treat their kids? That's the fruit of the Spirit. Are they accountable to people? See, that's how you begin. That's the life test of a false prophet or or a false teacher. Is there good fruit that comes from a good life? Because that's how it usually happens. If you've got a good tree, a good lemon tree, you're going to have lots of pretty good lemons. I'm not talking about perfect, but they're going to be good. If you've got a bad tree, a diseased tree, you're going to have that kind of fruit that's going to come forth. See, we live in a day of Christian celebrity. We, we live in a day of image management. Here's what I see with a lot of Christians nowadays. We are as enamored with Christian big dogs as we are with movie stars and sports celebrities. And when that begins to happen, when you begin to put people on that kind of a pedestal, here's what you begin to do. You begin to emphasize giftings over godliness. You begin to emphasize charisma over character. You begin to focus on talents over truth. You begin to focus on what they say and who they are versus how they act in godliness. And false prophets and false teachers, they often want to redefine what good is with their own desires and their surrounding voices. False Christians often want to do the same thing. They want to redefine. That's why, hear me, loved ones, Jesus is saying, and he's going to really emphasize it uh, in the last passage, you have to have an anchor point for good and for evil. And ultimately, it is really two things, God and his word. 
So this life becomes very important. Jesus says, you check out their life and you see how they live. Pull the curtains back. The second thing he talks about is words and teaching and doctrine. Again, I, the six times Jesus emphasizing that, and he hits it big time in Matthew chapter 12, 33 through 37. Uh, the disciple who we believe was closest to Jesus, the apostle John, in his uh, little letter to the church in 1 John 4, 1 says, Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they're from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. So John adds this warning about false prophets, and he gives three tests in the rest of that chapter to apply to it. He says, look for these people who love people. They don't use them. They are totally obedient to God. And they have a belief that Jesus Christ was the Son of God who came in the flesh. Does their teaching focus on Jesus? And here's how I can usually tell a good teacher for me is does their teaching, when I listen to them, does it turn me more to Jesus? And does it speak to my heart and say, I want to be more like Jesus? I want to deal with this thing in my life. Because if you're, there's two things there. If, if those things aren't happening with the teacher, one of two things, either you've got a hard heart or they may not be a, a godly teacher. Because there's a lot of people who know what they should do, but won't do it. Now, I know that's none of you. But there are a lot of people that say, I know what God wants, but I ain't going to do it. See, we live in a culture today, loved ones, not only cancel, but we cancel and discard this notion of truth. Hear me, hear me, hear me. Theologians are doing it. Pastors are doing it. Christian musicians, worship leaders, platform people, everywhere. Here's one of the catchphrases of Christianity right now. Hang with me. I know we're going over, but this is important stuff. People, all of those people that I mentioned, so many people everywhere are going public, and this is what they're saying. Hey, man, I'm just deconstructing my faith. You know what they're saying? They're saying two things, one of two things or both. I'm either going through a <clears throat> spiritual revision or I'm rejecting the tenets of my Christian faith. It's almost like they're saying, I've become enlightened. And so what do they do? They, these people that have incredible influence have gone online. They go, you know, whatever the online service they use, whether it's their podcast, their website, Instagram, Facebook, all of this, they go on there and they give these glowing testimonies about how, oh, I'm just free finally. Deconstructing their faith, the truth. They basically are moving from the universal truth of the word to everything is up for grabs. They would be considered false teachers, false prophets. Why? Because these are people that have had incredible platform ministry, leading people to Jesus, speaking to people, teaching people about Jesus, and now all of a sudden, guess what? They're no longer part of the Jesus movement. I'm not being critical as much as I'm just trying to say this is what's going on. I, I, there isn't probably two weeks that go by that I don't read about another Christian leader doing that or another Christian leader who's fallen because of finances or opposite sex stuff. 
or they're deconstructing their faith. Hear me, we need to be growing in the grace and knowledge of doctrine. A part of that, be a part of that. But we don't become in the process as we evaluate truth and doctrine that's being spoken. The, the, the other extreme that is happening today, you've got all of these people over here deconstructing their faith, walking away from their faith, and you got these people over here that are emphasizing doctrine so much that they become doctrine shotguns. Everywhere they turn, boom, they're off. Boom, they're off. They just go to YouTube. You'll see it. I'm not going to mention names, but one of the strongest teaching pastors in America has become in his last years that should be so gracious and filled with helping people. It's like it's his job to attack. Now listen, I believe, I've said this for two weeks because it's in the thing. I believe doctrine is critical, loved ones. But there's a lot of room for doctrinal belief. That's why we have so many churches. One of the greatest stories is it's not about always being right or wrong because ultimately you can be so wrong that you become wrong. Uh, you can be so right, you become wrong. I was talking to Trina about this a while back and she's a great theologian. So we're talking about these doctrinal stuff. She's not really, but uh, she said something that just made me really think because I'm trying to assess all this doctrinal stuff going on. And she says, you know what? Don't forget all of the doctrines that we basically embrace today are still created and coalesced by man or woman. Well, what do you mean? Well, if you go into my office, I have about four different doctrine books uh, by Lewis Schaefer, um, Ken Gruden, Meyer Perlman, um, probably one other. Oh, yeah, Guy Duffield. Most of them agree on a lot of doctrine. But it's interesting that every one of those books has a person's name on it, not the Bible. Now, now, hear me, please, because I, I, I say things and you hear different things. Here's what I'm saying. I trust those people and their doctrines, okay? Because these are brilliant, smart, godly people in minds. Okay, tracking with me? But hear me, ultimately, they're still people. And that's why in my four doctrine books, I have different perspectives on every doc, on, on a lot of the main doctrines that we believe. And that's all right. I can live with that. Remember last week I talked about truth being held in tension? Our finite minds can't say unequivocally that my doctrine is right unless it's about Jesus Christ being the salvation and savior of mankind and a few others. There's seven doctrines of our church that if you go through one-on-one, -on -one, you'll find these are the hills that I'll die on. There's this resurgence of a theological position today that is killed. I mean, it's like these people are just walking around with their doctrine guns and shooting people. Of 
Great story, two great spiritual awakening preachers. One was the evangelist George Whitfield, who would often speak to 30,000 people in open-air services because no other place could uh, hold the people. He was so gifted and eloquent that literally orators and actors would attend his services to see him in action. John Wesley was one of his contemporaries. He preached to the multitude in open airs. He was called a circuit rider preacher because he'd get on a horse and he would take his horse because the church basically kicked him and his brother Charles Wesley out because Charles Wesley was doing bar tunes. He would take bar music to attract people and put Christian words to them. So people would go by and go, hey, man, I know that bar tune. They'd walk in and it was a revival service. So the church kind of frowned on that. So John Wesley ended up starting the Methodist movement. So these two guys were some of the greatest preachers of their era. Yet they were extremely diverse in their views on certain doctrines of soteriology or salvation. Both of them were so convinced that they were right that they actually took out advertisements in the newspaper explaining their positions so people would know where they stood. People assumed that these two guys, Whitfield and, and Wesley, disliked each other. One time a reporter said to uh, Whitfield, he says, Mr. Whitfield, do you think that based on his theological positions that John Wesley will be in heaven? That you believe you'll see John Wesley in heaven? Whitfield said, no. I don't think so. And here's why. He's going to be so close to the throne of Jesus Christ and I will be so far back, I probably will hardly ever get sight of him. 1770, at George Whitfield's death, Wesley wrote a memorial sermon praising Whitfield's admirable qualities and noted the two men's differences. This is what he said. There are many doctrines of a less essential nature. And in these, we may think and let think. We may agree to disagree. But in the meantime, let us hold fast the essentials. Wesley, they believe, may have been the first one to use the term agree to disagree in print. Now, here's the point. I am not minimizing doctrine because the Bible makes it important. But make sure, friends, make sure, loved ones, that you are pursuing doctrines that are important and lead people astray. And here's what you'll find. Authentic leaders, genuine believers who speak for God, they can fail. But if they're authentic, they'll admit when they fall, they'll repent, and they'll begin to move in the right direction. Jesus is not suggesting that we reject every leader who is less than perfect, but we reject any leader who isn't true, pursuing truth, and leading with a moral center. Because you don't want to be the person that's running around with a doctrine gun shooting everybody. Because here's what a lot of people, they learn a little bit of doctrine, and what do they do? Now they've got a corner on the truth. Last one. Hang with me. You need to know and be known by Jesus. Listen to what Peterson writes at the end. 
He says, knowing the correct password, saying, master, master, for instance, isn't going to get you anywhere with me. What is required is serious obedience, doing what my father wills. I can see it now at the final judgment, thousands strutting up to me and saying, Master, we preached the message. We bashed the demons. Our God-sponsored projects had everyone talking. And Jesus says, you know what I'm going to say? You missed the boat. All you did was use me to make yourselves important. You don't impress me one bit. You are out of here. Interesting that Jesus moves from false teachers to false religion. Jesus is going to announce someday, I never knew you, to people. This is after people have called him, Lord, Lord, Master, Master. It's an emphatic statement that has the understanding they knew who Jesus was. They actively engaged in ministry activities. We prophesied in your name. We did miracles in your name. We drove out demons. Man, these are heavy hitters. It's a terrifying thing. (laughs) If you can read that and not go, hmm, you're probably not reading it very closely. Every time I read that, it slaps the slacks out of my spiritual sails. Jesus is teaching here, there will be people. The context is false teachers. They're going to say, God, I knew you. And Jesus is going to say, sorry, dude. Out of here. But here's what I want to say to you, because what does this mean for us? Because see, there comes a point, and I read it last week, Luke 13. I told you I was going to come back to it. Jesus is using almost the same metaphor, the same language. In Luke 13, but he's not talking about false prophets or false teachers at that time. Now he's talking about people. And he says the same thing. Yeah, you spoke in my name, man. You did this, you did that. You've done Bible studies, man. You've been around miracles. You've seen miracles. You've prayed for people. You've spoke of God. You go to Creekside. Whew. You've been baptized. You take communion. But you missed the open door. The song we sang, your presence is an open door. Critical issue. Jesus is saying that salvation, entrance into the kingdom is a relationship with God. It's not based on the religious things you do, but it's based on who you know. It's based on knowing Jesus Christ. And get this, it's based on him knowing you. Remember Mary at the tomb at the resurrection? She's, she's crying. She's bereaved. She comes out, sees the tomb is empty. She sees a gardener, which she thinks is a gardener over there. And she goes, sir, can you tell me where Jesus is? He says, well, you're looking in the right place. He's not here for he is risen. And then he says, Mary, and through her tears, she recognized, oh, that's Jesus. See, she didn't recognize him, but he recognized her. See, it's amazing because what is she walked with him? She heard him for three years. But here's the key. Jesus said, Mary, 
David said in Psalm 139 at the beginning, he said, Lord, you've created me, you've shaped me, you've woven me together in my mother's wombs. But at the end of the Psalm, this is what he says. He said, God, search me and know me. If there's any hurtful way in me, show me. Would you just know me? And let me know what is inside of me. You, you've created me, man. You put this, this tapestry of Terry together, but would you let me know what's going on inside of me that could be hurtful? Jesus says, I never knew you. That scares me. Now, I have a lot of confidence in my faith, but that word no comes from... It's, it's gnosko, it's the idea, it's the word of knowledge that has to do with relationship, not oida, which is about facts and figures, and I know that you're five foot seven, I know you weigh 120, I know this and that about you. No, this is about a relationship that says, I know you. It's, it's kind of, it's got this intimacy of Adam and Eve intimacy, where Adam knew Eve What does that mean for us? Well, I say it a lot, but Jesus didn't come to offer us a religion to do, but a relationship to enter into knowing him. We're daily, we're walking with him. We're being known by him. We're loving him. We're inviting him into our daily lives, our daily routine. It isn't just this brief encounter that we endure on Sunday morning. But it's, oh, Jesus, it's Monday. Today I want to walk with you. I want to know you. Today it's Tuesday. It's where we keep our lives open. It's where we keep our lives vulnerable to him, ourselves to him. He becomes our spiritual GPS, leading us and guiding us and letting us know, this is hurtful. This will mess you up. Face it, deal with it, touch it, let me touch it. I don't want to be a false teacher. I don't want to be a false Christian. This is another one of those truths in tension that's so paradoxical. You've got this omniscient God. Omniscient simply means all-knowing. He's been everywhere. He is every place. He is all-knowing. But at one point, he's going to say, I never knew you. That's tension. That's paradox. These people made decisions for some time, time after time, not to let Jesus into their life. That's part of God's will, that you open up, spread yourself open, invite Jesus in to know you every day in every way. Would you bow your heads with would you stand and bow your heads with me, please? <clears throat> Father, we come today and Your word really is a light unto our feet and a lamp unto our path. It shows us where we are today, but it's also able to lead us forward to where we need to go.
I'm convinced, Lord, the greatest truth of the Bible is that because you came and died, rose again, paid for our sins, that every person needs love, acceptance, and forgiveness. But there's also the truth that Jesus said, I want, if you follow me and you do my will, and Lord, help us to step into that. Let our life speak of the truth of who you are. Let us be discerning, Lord, to know truth and to hear truth and to speak truth to people. If you're here today and, or maybe you're online and you've never said yes to Jesus, or maybe you've just got this religious relationship where you kind of cruise into church or you just kind of do the religious thing, but you really don't know Jesus or he, he's not really getting to know you because you haven't invited him in. I would invite you to do that this morning. Maybe there's some of you that just said, man, I've gotten way off track. It's all about the religious thing and I haven't stepped into a relationship. If that would be you, I, I want to pray for you today. Would you just raise your hand or on online, would you just click that little hand up there and say, that's me today. I need to do that. Maybe you can meet with somebody online to pray with them. But if that's you today, you've never done that. Would you just raise your hand and say, yeah, PT, that's me. Would you just pray for me? I want to invite Jesus in. I want to walk with him. I want him to walk with me. Yes, thank you. See your hand, yeah. Thank you. Anybody else? Say, that's it's me, PT. I got to move from this religion, religion stuff. Yeah, thank you, ma'am. See your hand, yeah. Thank you. Anybody else? Those of you who've raised your hand or online, would you just say a simple prayer today that sounds something like, Jesus, I invite you into my life. I choose to follow you. I want you to know me and I want to know you. Would you forgive me of my sins? Would you receive me as a son or a daughter today? I encourage you to do that right now. Father, we come. In your son's name, we ask you, Lord, to lead us and to guide us. I pray, Lord, for those of us today that have simply allowed this to become a religion that we do instead of a relationship that we share. God, heal us from this Americano Christianity and cultural religion, Lord, that's so easy to get steeped in. Lead us back to you, Jesus, the door, the entry point. So I thank you, Lord, for your truth. Speak to us and lead us, I pray. Help us to be a church. Help us to be individuals who every day in every way press into who you are and what you have for us. In your strong name, I give thanks. Amen.